This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Kenneth Bonilson. I'm an associate professor of social anthropology in Oslo and also the coordinator of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. And the theme we'll be debating today is Biden and Asia, what lies ahead? I'm here with Professor Paul Mitford, who is the director of the Japan program at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, and also a longtime member of the steering committee of our network. Also with me is Professor Eustein Tunsche from the Norwegian Institute of Defense Studies and Dr. Henrik Chetan Aspengren, who is the acting head of the Asia Pacific of the Asia program at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. All three panelists were part of a recent webinar on the same theme organized by our network and I'd like to thank all of you for being here today to continue this conversation. So welcome to all of you. Joe Biden was recently called a man with a black belt in realpolitik by a leading Danish newspaper. But as we record this, it's still less than a month since he was sworn in as the president of the United States of America. So it might be useful to begin the discussion about what lies ahead by looking back at uh, what went before Biden. Some commentators hold that Trump's policies on Asia rattled U.S. alliances in East Asia to a degree unseen for more than four decades, and that Trump managed to alienate quite many long-standing allies and friends. Others point out that alliances between the U.S. and countries such as Japan and South Korea and U.S. aligned states such as India have nonetheless proven to be quite resilient even under Trump. So as we welcome Joe Biden, what is the legacy of the Trump presidency? Let's begin with India and with Henrik. I think it's important to note that the U.S.-India cooperation has deepened and expanded considerably over almost last two decades. And former President Trump did not dramatically alter that trajectory. Of course, there were specific glitches, for example, regarding work permits and visas, and also related to the unpredictability introduced by Trump. But overall, I would say that India actually gained a pronounced importance as a possible balancing power regionally and a central actor in the emerging Indo-Pacific narrative pushed by the Trump administration. And regarding Japan, the alliance was certainly rocked to a significant degree by Trump's extreme rhetoric when he talked about Japan maybe becoming strategically independent and developing nuclear weapons and demanding that Japan triple or quadruple its host nation support to the U.S. for the stationing of the U.S. military in Japan. Those things, those elements that Trump introduced certainly rocked the relationship, yet the relationship was also rather stable. The Abe administration in particular, and then later the Suga administration, bent over backwards to try to maintain the relationship on an even keel during the Trump administration, and they were able to prevent some of the worst scenarios, such as actually making an irrevocable demand for a vast increase in host nation support, or Trump's repeated threat to impose import taxes on Japanese automobile exports. None of those things happened. And although on the other hand, I would say, I think there's also a new awareness in Japan that the alliance might be more fragile than it was thought at the beginning of the Trump administration. And certainly public opinion in Japan became much more alienated and distrustful of the United States than was true at the beginning of the Trump administration. So that's that's a legacy that Biden will have to work on overcoming. I think for me, focusing on U.S.-China relations, I think the legacy would be that the, the Trump administration signified the kind of the start of a new superpower rivalry. 
Of course, the United States has always been occupied with China, and one could argue that this kind of pivot to Asia and the rebalancing going on during the Obama administration was quite significant. But I do think that this gained a, a totally new momentum during the Trump administration. And of course, more confrontation, more competition evolved in US-China relations. And I think this will be a lasting legacy. And I don't think it's going to change. I think it's actually we will see more continuity along this path with the new Biden administration. But of course, as Anthony Blinken said in his congressional hearings before he took up the position as a secretary of state, the new Biden administration in many ways agree with the principles that sort of there is a new rivalry here with China. We are in a new era, but they disagree with tactics that the Trump administration used. And in that sort of area, I would point out three specific things. Uh, the trade war, I think we will still see confrontation on trade investments and economic issues, but they will conduct the kind of rivalry differently than the Trump administration. When it comes to the emphasis on democracy, I think that will be very significant in the Biden administration but it was not very significant during the Trump administration. In fact, the Trump undermined U.S. democracy at home. He couldn't care less about it when it comes to U.S. policy abroad. And finally, when it comes to U.S. relationship with allies, I think we will see changes that the United States under Biden would try to work closer with allies and in contrast to the Trump administration when it comes to, to challenging China on a number of issues. All of us who followed the U.S. elections this fall, I mean, we remember it took a while before Joe Biden was declared the next president of the U.S. So I guess most countries had some time to get used to the idea that Biden would be next. What was the immediate reaction from some of the major powers to the news that eventually came that Biden had indeed won? Let's start with Pan and Paul Mitford, please. Japan, of course, was uh, measured in its response. They welcomed uh, Biden's victory. But I would say it was very bifurcated. Ironically, despite all the problems that Japan had with Donald Trump, elites in Japan, I think, particularly in the ruling LDP, tended to favor and support or hope that Trump would win re-election. And behind this is kind of this persistent myth in Japan, I would call it a, a myth, that Republicans are good for Japan and Democrats are bad. There's even some sense that Democrats tend to lean more toward in favor of China, whereas Republicans tend to lead more in favor of Japan. I think the actual, if you look at the record historically, I, I don't think that's true. I think that's more myth than anything. But there has been this increasing tendency over the last decade or two for the LDP to identify more with the Republican Party in the United States, even though they're both very conservative parties, their ideology is nonetheless, political positions are, are quite different. But nonetheless, I think they will, in the long run, probably be happier that Biden won instead of Trump. I'd also add that public opinion in Japan was very much against Trump mass opinion in Japan tends to favor Democrats more. They very much welcomed Biden's victory. Although I'd also point out that you had a small movement in Japan of Trump supporters who continued to demonstrate long after the election was decided that the election had been stolen from Trump. And there's even a very small QAnon movement that's developed in Japan for some reason. But overall, mass public opinion, very happy. Elites, perhaps more favorable toward Trump, but not particularly disappointed that Biden won. 
Well, I think, again, focusing on U.S.-China relations, I think from a Chinese perspective, it was a lot of ambivalence. Couldn't really agree whether Trump or Biden would be the best. I think many were tired of the confrontations and the trade war and so on with, with the Trump administration. But on the other hand, some would argue that it was possible to make deals with Trump, that it was possible to flatter him. And also the fact that Trump was not concerned about democracy, the way he handled the Hong Kong uh, situation, the way he handled the situation in Xinjiang province of China and the Uyghurs. All of this suggested that maybe a new Trump administration would be favorable. But on the other hand, many would also argue that Chinese could do well with Biden. They they know Biden. He's an experienced politician. Xi Jinping has personally met him as a vice president and in, in the past. Yes, there are some tough issues that needs to be dealt with in this bilateral relationship. But I think overall, many were probably, it's hard to say, but I would argue that a new Biden administration was, was welcomed after at least the last couple of years being such high tension in the relationship with the Trump administration. Just like Einstein just said, I think Trump had everyone on their toes and the prospect of greater predictability was, of course, welcomed also in New Delhi. And also, I would say that India's if we call it a middle power, at least rhetorically nowadays, putting more emphasis on multilateralism. And to have a champion of multilateralism in Washington was seen as a plus. But as Paul mentioned in regards to Japan, there are segments in Indian society where Trump was and still is very popular. But there is one issue, of course, where Delhi will watch the new Biden administration very closely, and that's the new China policy or if there will be a new China policy. So uh, this is an issue that will be of great interest to New Delhi and some insecurities as well surrounding that. Looking back at the conversation we had at the recent webinar where we discussed the same theme, I recall you all agreed rather quickly on one thing in particular that we could be sure would mark a change from Trump to Biden, and that was political rhetoric. I mean, that we were sure to see a new president that speaks in a very different language and style than, than his predecessor. What difference will this change in rhetorical style mean? It's, it's an interesting question. I mean, my gut feeling says that it probably won't change that much. But I think also think that Trump was such a unique character and the way he sort of presented himself as the president and as a leader of, of the free world. It was hard for many of his allies to, to follow him. And the way he spoke both about his opponents and countries that has been close allies to the United States for many years sort of contributed to this disruption of the ties between the U.S. and its allies and also increased the level of tension in difficult relationships, whether it was with China or other countries. So I do think, of course, that the way a president conducts itself, the words presidents use, says something about the leadership and also whether others will follow. And I think we can can I expect this to improve with the new administration, but I, I'm not sure how much it will matter. When push comes to show, there will be hard economic, military, and technological interests at stake, and the words the president used might not change everything. I might sound like a parrot here, but I'm repeating myself, but I think 
Again, the unpredictability in Trump's rhetoric was very exhausting for political leaderships around the world, including India, and also for the ones who work, work in foreign services and the Ministry of External Affairs. You know, the way that Trump's rhetoric sort of disrupted the modus operandi of foreign relations was a major issue and a major concern. How do you operate in such an environment where things can be, you know, said at one point and then be obsolete and reversed the next day? That puts a lot of strain on uh, diplomatic services and the way that you conduct international relations. But in terms of the rhetoric domestically by Trump, I think we see some of the same kind of rhetorics elsewhere, but not perhaps from the political leadership, but in the case of India, but we see that from actors within the government, the party in government in India. So there are similarities and differences, I think. In the case of Japan, like Henrik and Oystein said, certainly Trump's very unpredictable rhetoric was exhausting for Japanese elites. It created a lot of dilemmas and problems for them with Trump making statements that then Prime Minister Abe had to explain in Parliament and particularly in relation to Japan's policies. So when Trump publicly pressured Japan to buy more weapons from the U.S., that created dilemmas for him in Parliament. He had to explain that Japan was buying more weapons, but not because of the things Trump was saying. And also, I think this created more trust and more opposition to the Trump administration and to the U.S. among Japanese public opinion. Polls show that trust in the U.S. fell significantly during this period. Trust in the U.S. alliance fell significantly. And so the the new rhetoric, the, the more moderate rhetoric by Biden, I think will help to rebuild trust in the alliance, will come as a relief to elites, even those who might have favored second Trump term. But one other thing, kind of stepping back to what we were talking about a second ago, Trump's very anti-China rhetoric has created this perception that Biden, who's coming in with more moderate, more measured rhetoric, is not going to be tough enough on China. So China hawks in Japan, and I think other places, including maybe even Hong Kong, Taiwan, have a tendency, I think, to see Biden is somehow soft on China. I don't think that's the case, but I think one unintended consequence of Trump's rhetoric is extreme rhetoric is to create that impression, at least in the short run. As Oystein mentioned, of course, rhetoric is one thing. Another is the realpolitical approach that a new president may adopt vis-a-vis -vis different nations in Asia. One thing that Biden has been rather vocal for some time is his desire to restore democracy in the U.S., but also to lead the democratic world, if you like, something that Trump was perhaps never particularly preoccupied with. If President Biden will persist in promoting democracy and democratization also in Asia, what implications will this have? Let's begin with India here, a country which prides itself of being the biggest democracy in the world, but which is also in some respects sliding in a more authoritarian direction under Prime Minister Modi. Henrik, what will a Biden presidency with an emphasis on democracy mean for relations with India? There is no straight answer to this, I would say. Recent conversation between Biden and Modi, Blinken, Jai Shankar can give us some indications. First, as I mentioned earlier, cooperation between India and the US has expanded and deepened for almost two decades now. There are so many ways and areas in which the countries cooperate. So major shifts are not to be expected. And also the fact that the US views India as a almost indispensable partner now for balancing China in Indo-Pacific gives India an assurance that the US will not question its democratic credentials. 
But the U.S. might raise issues of concern, for example, minority rights or the shutting down of telecommunications or the Internet. But also then to point out that these are issues and matters that India should work out to resolve you know, internally. But this raising of the issue itself might be seen as an irritant in New Delhi. For Japan, this is be- the issue of the promotion of democracy in Asia is already becoming a significant issue in relation to the Biden administration. We can see this right now with Myanmar, where we see the Biden administration beginning to take a tough line on the coup in Myanmar the other day, imposing sanctions on the leaders in Myanmar and other sanctions. And that puts Japan in a bit of an awkward position, but a position it's been in before, because Japan has long tried to maintain an open door to Myanmar, even over months of, over years rather, of military dictatorship. Japan tried to maintain a relationship and an open door with the generals in Myanmar. And it's now finding itself in that position again, because although the Biden administration is not doing it yet, we can expect that they may start to pressure Japan to also impose some kinds of sanctions. And But Japan does not want to do that because it sees its presence there as important for counterbalancing China's presence. And also it has a lot of economic stakes. A lot of Japanese companies have invested there. But we also see similar issues in the Philippines and Thailand, countries that are U.S. allies, but have had tension with the U.S. over authoritarian backsliding in both of those countries. And we can expect that those tensions will resurge during the Biden administration. And more generally, Japan has been pursuing what we can call values diplomacy as a reaction to the rise of China. Until the 1990s, Japan's approach to regional peace and security was peace through development. If everyone becomes wealthier and develops, then the region will become more peaceful, kind of classic liberalism. However, China challenged that. As China became wealthier, the relationship with Japan did not become better. It even became worse. And since the first couple of years of the 2000s, Japan has been emphasizing so-called values diplomacy, not only economic development, but also democracy and human rights. But this is really a way to counterbalance China more than actually promote democracy. So when balancing China comes into conflict with promoting democracy and liberal values, Japan tends to make counterbalancing China a priority. And I think we are and will see that in Myanmar. We'll also see that with the Philippines, Thailand, and places like Vietnam as well. So I think for U.S.-China relations, I think this will be a very important change. I think we have seen the signs already, especially the inauguration address by Biden, the emphasis on democracy, of of restoring U.S. leadership of the free world. And we can see this in a number of the issues already mentioned. But again, we see the talk about genocide in Xinjiang province with the Uyghur population. We see how the administration talk about the events in Hong Kong. We see a, a debate coming about boycott of the Winter Olympics in China in 2022. We see how the administration is talking about the flourishing democracy in Taiwan and how they need to support Taiwan in in a number of waves. Gradually, we'll probably see the opening of the the restrictions on official contact between the United States and Taiwan being uh, lifted, not completely, but maybe step by step. All of this is creating a lot of tension in the relationship between the United States and China. In addition, the way Biden presents his foreign policy and his emphasis on democracy puts his allies in a new situation compared to the Trump administration. Now, the United, let's start with the European allies, they have characterized China as a systemic rival when it comes to governance. 
And now they have to, you know, explain what they actually want to do about that. And, and same for U.S. allies in the Asia-Pacific and in the Indo-Pacific. They will feel much more pressure to come on board with a tougher stand against China with uh, the kind of emphasis that Biden is putting on promoting democracy. And sort of following up what Paul said, I totally agree with this. I think in this new superpower rivalry between the United States and China, there will be this competition for alignment of third or second ranked states. And in that competition, it's, you know, balancing or, or, or kind of containing or competing with China will be more important than promoting democracy. I'd like to stay with this theme that you brought up now, Oystein, the broader conflict scenario and this great power rivalry between the US and China. And you already gave us some indication of what we may expect under a Biden administration. But could I ask you to expand a little bit on this? I mean, what can we expect from this great power rivalry in the years ahead? And how will China, India and Japan respond if things potentially escalate? Paul, let's hear from Japan. Well, in terms of great power rivalry or conflict scenarios, one of them, one of the most dangerous ones has to do with Japan itself, and that is the territorial conflict between Japan and China over the so-called Daoyu or Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea. These are, I would argue, more dangerous than the territorial conflicts in the South China Sea because unlike, say, the Philippines' claims to the Spratly Islands, the U.S.-Japan Treaty of Alliance of 1960, under the terms of that alliance, it's very clear, and the U.S. has made it clear, that that alliance applies to defending Japan's control of the Senkaku Islands. So if China were to challenge that physically, militarily, the U.S., as themselves have acknowledged, would be obligated to respond to that. So that could become a scenario for an actual militarized conflict. Obviously, Taiwan is another major one as well. But stepping back from that particular conflict for a moment, how would Japan respond to a more general confrontation or worsening of relations? Japan, when Abe came to power in 2013, was pushing the U.S. to adopt a more confrontational approach towards China. But under Trump, the U.S. approach to China became even more confrontational than that of Japan. And I would argue in the last couple of years, Japan has been actually act, trying to act as a bit of a bridge and, and trying to moderate the U.S. a bit. Japan has a strong, a strong interest in a U.S. that confronts China, but there are also limits to that. Japan doesn't want this to lead to instability or regional conflict, although they will risk conflict to defend the, their control of the Senkaku Islands. And in terms of the broader geoeconomic side of this, Japan is willing to decouple to some extent from China. Japan has already banned Huawei from its 5G networks. But on the other hand, Japan is much less willing to decouple from China, I would argue, than is the United States, because they're economically, they're much more deeply tied. And I don't think it's imaginable that Japan could go back to a pre-1972 world in which they have almost no trade with China, for example. Whereas that would be really hard for the U.S. to do as well, but it would be much harder for China, I think. So I think Japan will act as a bit of a break and try to play its favorite self-identified role as a bridge between Asia, in this case, China and Western countries, particularly the United States, to try to moderate the relationship, even while maintaining a fairly hard line against China as well. I think Paul is saying here is very interesting, and I agree with him that the U.S. commitments to Japan and to the treaty uh, alliance there is, is stronger than in the South China Sea. But at the same time, 
Because of that, U.S.-Japan deterrence against China is much stronger than it is in the South China Sea when it comes to dealing with, for instance, the Philippines or Malaysia or Nam. So I do think that the risk of conflict is probably higher in the South China Sea, that some kind of crisis escalates than actually in the East China Sea. But then when it comes to probably the most contentious issue, which is Taiwan, I think that can escalate any day. But I think still the Chinese would prefer to wait yet uh, another 5, 10, 20 years. But of course, they will act if there is a crisis, if uh, ships collide, uh, flights, fighter planes, like another Hainan uh, accident, or if Taiwan uh, takes steps towards independence, or if the US becomes too close officially with Taiwan. So there are a number of things that can, that can trigger this. But I just want to bring up two very important sort of overall general issues. And the first is that there are sovereignty issues at stake in this new superpower rivalry. There were not a sovereignty issues at stake in the relationship between the Soviet Union and the United States to the same extent that the Soviet Union was claiming sovereignty over Eastern Europe or East Germany or East Berlin. But China has all these sovereignty claims, and that makes this kind of superpower rivalry more dangerous. Secondly, the, this kind of superpower rivalry is in the maritime domain, which makes it geopolitically higher risk of a war, because you can actually foresee that there can be like a naval battle in the Taiwan Strait or in the South China Sea, which doesn't necessarily escalate to a third world war or a nuclear war. This was much harder to foresee in Europe where everybody expected a war between the United States and the Soviet Union or the military forces you know, going across the East-West divide to escalate to a, a major clear war. So these are very interesting developments, and I think we should need to follow this very carefully. And of course, China-India is a very important topic, and I think Henrik will have things to say about that as well. Well, I think the situation for India is very different, of course, compared to, for example, Japan. I mean, it's not a, an alliance or a treaty partner. And the focus for India is the modernization of India's economy and its own developmental needs. And its foreign policy reflects this. So things that sort of makes it more difficult for India to modernize its own economy it creates a lot of problems for India. So it will be important for India not to be drawn into any escalation. But of course, as Ishtan says, it has its own issues and conflict with China on the border, specifically on the border. And it's also, of course, a great challenge for India to counter China's increasing activities in what India considers to be its neighborhood and sort of compete with China in its own neighborhood. But as it is not a treaty partner to the U.S., it will try to stay out of any escalation that is driven by U.S.-China rivalry. But it will, of course, you know, keep on being, as it has been for the last period of time here, be firmer on the specific issues where a conflict is likely to flare up, for example, in the border, on the border issue in Ladakh. So let's conclude by looking further ahead, if, if possible. Let's say from the perspective of China, Japan and uh, India, respectively, what will it require from Joe Biden for the leaders of these countries to conclude that these four years with Biden in office were, in fact, vastly better than the years with Trump? What would it take from a Biden administration to evoke that kind of response from these different countries? Oystein, could we start with you? 
Well, I think it's a great final question here. I think actually, from a Chinese point of view, we, they would, you know, a dream scenario would be a kind of a reset, going back to kind of this kind of engagement policy and a more equal relationship between China and the United States, where they can cooperate not just economically but diplomatic, have the same status and prestige and so forth. But I don't see this going to happen. I think we're we're moving in the other direction. I think. There is a bipartisan support in Congress. You can see the Biden administration. Yes, they are going to change things from the Trump administration. But in principle, we are heading for a rivalry between two new superpowers who are much more powerful than than the other states. And this will shape world politics for decades to come. And I don't think this is going to change. And superpowers are going to have sort of this kind of cooperative relationship. I think we're going to. Yeah, fasten our seatbelts and prepare for more competition, more rivalry, and more confrontation. I think in the case of India, I think the most important part would be, or the most important thing would be, that Biden's China policy and wider Asia policy did not affect negatively the possibilities of India's rise and emergence as a global power. That is sort of the main priority here for India. In the case of Japan, Biden administration is starting off with a bit of a disadvantage, given that again, there's this, as I mentioned earlier, this kind of mythology within the LDP, within the ruling party, among the senior leaders, that Republicans tend to favor Japan and Democrats tend to be more pro-China. So he has to start by overcoming that skepticism. But I would think that there are a couple things he could do that could convince the LDP that maybe image or that perspective is wrong, and that actually Biden is much better for Japan than the Trump administration. One would be the first would be rejoining the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, which throughout the Trump administration, Abe tried, almost even begged Trump to do, which would, of course, then lead to some economic counterbalancing vis-a-vis China. Another big one would be dropping Trump's tariffs and tariff threats towards Japan, the steel tariffs, the threat of automobile tariffs, that would be appreciated in Japan a lot. And then third would be continuing the Trump administration's hard line towards China, but doing so more adroitly, more skillfully, and without the rhetorical drama either the rhetorical drama in the context of the U.S.-Japan alliance or even towards China. Japanese leaders would favor a consistent long-term hard line that is less filled with drama. So in other words, less drama queen or drama king kind of tactic from the Biden administration would be broadly appreciated in Japan. Henrik Titan, Aspen Glenn, Oystein Tunchu, and Paul Medford. Thank you for this fascinating conversation. My name is Kenneth Bonilson, and thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.